This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocate radio program. My name is Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. And thanks to all of you who gave us such terrific feedback after last week's program. And glad you're along with us again today. On today's program, in the second segment and third segment, I'll be chatting with Mr. Gerald Salente. Gerald is the founder of the Trends Research Institute, and he is a literally world-renowned trend forecaster. So I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with him. And, you know, I want to tell you a little bit more about the program for those of you that are new listeners. This is a financial program. We talk about economics and politics as well, but there's certainly no shortage of financial programs on the radio. Lots of financial programs that you can listen to. However, let me make the case that this one is a bit different. Let me tell you why you should listen to this program. First of all, we never pitch product on the radio. My guests and I will not talk about product. We are here for one reason, and that is to educate you. And not really even just to educate you, but to educate you from a common sense perspective. Now, what do I mean by that common sense perspective? Well, let's stop just for a minute and pay tribute to your history teacher or your history professor. Remember what your history teacher told you? Your history teacher said, probably in an effort to get you excited about studying history, although admittedly it didn't work on me at the time, that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. If you don't study history, you're doomed to make the same mistakes that those who've gone before you have made. Now, I have made a study of economic history And I've made it a point to interview some very bright people who have also made it their work to study economic history. And I have come to the conclusion that we repeat the same economic and financial mistakes over and over again because human behavior is predictable. Faced with the same set of facts and circumstances, humans behave similarly. Even more predictable is the collective behavior of groups of humans. And if we want to narrow that down to a subset of humans, the predictive, the the behavior rather of politicians as a group is extremely predictive. In fact, when politicians collectively are faced with a big financial problem, they have only three ways that they can try to solve the problem. They can approach the financial problem or funding shortfall by raising taxes. However, that's not very popular politically. They can approach the problem by cutting spending, and when you cut spending, often you cut benefits, also not politically popular. And the third way this problem can be attacked is by printing money, printing currency. And time and time again throughout history, On nearly every continent and just about every century, there is one example after another of groups of politicians that have decided to print currency. And when they have decided to print currency, the outcome has been the same every time. 
So by studying economic history and looking at conditions that existed at the time, looking at the political response, and looking at the conditions that emerged as a result of this political response, we have a pretty good idea of what might lie ahead. It's predictive. Now, to continue this discussion, I want to go back and look at just one aspect of economic history. And I'm going to look at something called boom and bust cycles. Most recently, we saw a boom cycle in stocks and real estate followed by a bust. This happened about a decade ago. And during the boom phase, stocks went crazy. Banks had record profits. Real estate prices rose. And then when we hit the bust cycle, real estate prices plummeted. Stocks crashed, and many banks needed to be bailed out, at least those that were deemed to be too big to fail. Now, this boom and bust cycle is pretty predictable because prior to that boom and bust cycle, there was another one involving tech stocks. Now, if you go back and look at when these boom and bust cycles have existed, historically speaking, they've existed when there was easy money policies. In the last segment of today's program, I'll talk to you about some of those historical examples, but let me go back to the 1970s. We'll go back to 1971 when then-President Richard Nixon closed the gold window. Well, what does that mean? Well, when he closed the gold window, he eliminated the link between the dollar and gold. See, prior to that time, the dollar was redeemable for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. So if you had 35 US dollars, you could exchange it for an ounce of gold and vice versa. Well, the rest of the world was very comfortable using US dollars because at any time they could exchange their dollars for gold. This whole system, this whole gold exchange standard was set up after World War II when the world's financial system needed to be rebuilt again. Well, then along came the 60s, and the politicians in the 60s had the same choices when it came to paying for Medicare, which was a new program, Medicaid, which was a new program, the Model Cities program, which was initiated in the 60s, and of course, the Vietnam War was going on, which wars are always very expensive. So the politicians had three choices. They could either raise taxes, cut spending, or print currency to fund all these projects and programs. They elected the latter. And because of all this currency printing, many foreign investors became quite nervous. In fact, they decided that they might rather own the gold than the dollars that they were holding. So there was almost a run on the bank with foreign investors figuratively lining up outside the United States saying, here are your dollars, give me the gold. Because of that, and because the United States had printed too many dollars, then-President Richard Nixon went on television and said that in order to preserve the integrity of the U.S. dollar, these redemptions of dollars for gold would have to be suspended temporarily. Well, what was was broadcast, what was advertised as a temporary suspension, ended up 
being a permanent suspension of these redemptions. And since that time, the dollar has floated against other currencies. And what it has allowed is the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve is comprised of a private group of bankers. It is not a government agency. A lot of people aren't aware of that. And it's allowed the Fed to really manipulate monetary policy. And the Fed has printed money, and there's a couple of ways that the Fed prints money. Most recently, after the financial crisis, they just printed it. We'll talk about that more in the last segment. But the other way they print in a a fractionalized reserve banking system is they reduce interest rates. Because as interest rates drop, people are more likely to borrow money. And if I go put money in my bank, my banker has to reserve 10% of what I put in. The other 90% can be loaned out. If the borrower of that 90% goes and buys something else, then that money makes it to another bank where the process is repeated. And the lower interest rates are, typically the faster money moves and the more money is created. So that's the first way that money printing occurs. And that money printing is linked to boom and bust cycles, as I'll talk about in the last segment of today's program. And more importantly, give you some ideas to protect yourself. That's in the last segment of today's program. However, in the next segment, I'll be talking to Gerald Salente. Hope you'll stay with me. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. My guest on today's program uh, is Mr. Gerald Salente. USA Today says that Gerald Salente has a knack for getting the zeitgeist right. And the New York Post said if Nostradamus were alive today, he'd have a hard time keeping up with Gerald Salente. Uh, Mr. Salente founded the Trends Research Institute in 1980. He's the author of the national bestseller Trends 2000 and Trend Tracking. And uh, he uh, publishes the Trends Journal, which is widely read. I would encourage you to check out his website at trendsjournal.com. And, Gerald, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Dennis. So, Gerald, uh, you wrote in your 2019 Trend Special Report that on September 19, two days before the U.S. equity markets hit a new high, uh, you alerted your subscribers to prepare for an economic 9-11. And now that the market has seen a significant amount of downside since that time frame and has rallied a bit as we record this, what's your take? Is there more downside coming? Well, when we wrote that, again, it was September 19, 2018, the Federal Reserve Chairman 
had made it very clear that they were going to do one more interest rate hike in 2018 in December, and then possibly three to four in 2019. We based our forecast on the stopping of the flow of cheap money, and that's all that has popped up and propped up the equity markets around the world. They didn't teach you anything about zero negative interest rate policy or quantitative easing in economics 101 at graduate school. They made this stuff up. So now all of a sudden you're seeing the central banks around the world pulling back on the loose money. That's what we made the forecast on. Then what happened on January 4th, and this is why no one could predict the future. When people call me a futurist, they say, I'm not a futurist. I can't predict the future. There are too many wild cards, whether they're man-made or made by Mother Nature. And then the wild card that was played on January 4th, 2019, after the United States had very, very accelerated job report, over 300,000 jobs created, and the best year of wage increases in 10 years, which would have been a good excuse for the Federal Reserve to say, see, we're going to raise interest rates again. Instead, we heard from the Fed chairman say, you know, we're going to be patient. We've been watching the volatility in the equity markets, and we're observing it very closely. That's what brought about the rally that followed since the markets were declining on Christmas Eve up until that point. So now we're saying, well, we're changing our forecast. We, our forecast was based upon the Federal Reserve raising interest rates three to four times this year. Now it's even possible that they may not only not raise them, but cut back. And we think that's what's going to happen. So now as we're speaking, we're seeing the equity markets around the world declining on fears of a global economic slowdown. We saw the numbers coming out from China. Oh, their worst, you know, GDP numbers in 20 years. Oh, yeah, they were only, what, 6.5%? They brag in the United States when we have a 3% growth. You know, so there's still strong growth going on over there, but it's a slowdown. Now we're hearing from the IMF, they're downgrading their assessments too on global growth. And we're also seeing, you know, throughout the European Union, a slowdown in growth. China's third quarter GDP numbers came in at minus 2.5%. Japan's uh, GDP numbers came in at minus 2.5%. So now, we yes, we're looking at a global slowdown. However, we're also going to see, we are forecasting, more monetary methadone pumped into the bull by the central banks. They're going to do everything they can to keep these stock markets propped up. Artificially, yes, but it's going to build that $250 trillion debt bubble bigger. It's going to build the collateralized loan obligations that a lot of corporations have taken out, the ones that are in trouble, larger. So what it's going to do it's going to forestall the economic 9-11 that we have forecast, but only temporarily. Yeah, Gerald, and how long can this continue? I mean, when you when you look at where we what, what we've seen, I mean, it's it's almost lunacy when when you think about the fact that we've seen negative interest rates in some parts of the world and and, and money printing out of thin air. It's gone further than certainly 
uh, a lot of analysts ever thought it could. Uh, this is just going to build the, the, the bubble that much bigger, as you said, but uh, is there any more, are there any more bullets left in the gun? I mean, can this work for very much longer? Well, again, you know, I, I had called the panic of 08, even took out the domain name in 2007. And then I believe that we were going to go into a severe depression around 2012. But again, they came, they threw the wild card. I never heard of quantitative easing or, or, or negative and zero interest rate policy. So to answer your question, they're going to come up with any scheme they can come up with. And I want to make this very clear. You know, first of all, as you know, we, as you know, we're political atheists. We don't take sides on things. There's no advertisers in our Trends Journal. It's all by subscription, so nobody tells us what to say or how to say it. So now, when you look at listening to the words of the Federal Reserve Chairman saying, we've been watching the equity markets, and we're sensitive to it. His words, sensitively, sensitively is the word he used. Wait a minute, the equity markets? Oh, that study just came out? 1%, the 1% own 50% of the U.S. equity markets. The 1%, oh, so that's who you're looking out for. And that's why you're seeing, by the way, in looking at our trends and seeing where they're going on a global level beyond economics, that's why you're seeing the yellow vest movement in France. It's against the, the, the inequality. That's why you're seeing it happening in Austria, and there are other reasons too, of course, in immigrant immigrant problems in Poland. One after another, there are the, the Five Star Movement in Italy. One after another, it's about the income inequality. So what we just saw a, a study come out this week by Oxfam. Twenty-six people in the world have more money than half the world's population. Twenty-six people in the United States. Three people: Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos. And Bill Gates, well, not, maybe not Bezos anymore because it looks like his wife's going to get half of the action since the divorce. <laughs> they got more dough than half of the United States combined. This is worse than it was during the Gilded Age. The big banks got bigger. Too big to fail? No, this isn't a failure of capitalism. That's called fascism, the merger of state and corporate powers. Too big to fail doesn't exist in capitalism. And they got bigger. We just saw the numbers coming out. Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase, $30 million plus this year for salary. Thirty. Yeah, he really worked hard on that assembly line. You know, so this is what you're seeing. And that's why you're going to see more and more of these. Pro these aren't socialist protests. That's the word that they use. These are people, you saw the numbers coming out, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 78%. So this is good. So the Federal Reserve is only there for the central banksters to keep propping up the equity markets. 95% of the wealth since the panic of 08 went to the 1% in the United States. So, Gerald, when you, when you look at uh, this and that that trend of the the rich getting richer and the and the poor uh, and, and the middle class is almost non-existent. Uh, what's your forecast for what that means for political uh, activity moving ahead? Do we do you, are we going to see more of these fringe movements even here in the United States get traction? Oh, it's not going to be a fringe movement. They're going to be major movements. This. Uh, 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 it's going to be one after another. Again, the people, the people are fed up, you know, with uh, with the inequality and the and the and the both 
both political parties only represent, you know, morons, imbeciles, and people with a half a brain call the money that they get campaign contributions. Adults call it bribes and payoffs. So we have a we have a two party system that's just there for the payoffs that they get, so that people can stay in office and do the work that they that they're getting paid off to do. So you know you're going to see this whole social. They're going to call it a socialist movement. It's going to be huge, and this Ocio Cortez is is the is is showing that, and her coming out saying she wants you know seventy percent uh, tax rate uh, for multimillionaires. You know people forget. They're calling her a socialist. What would you call Dwight D. Eisenhower, the five-star general, supreme commander of the Allied forces? Would you call him a socialist? The tax rate was 90% back when he was there. It was a redistribution of wealth. That's why we had a middle class. So you're going to see, no, no, this 20, 2020 campaign is going to be a hot one. So, Gerald, I want to go back and just revisit debt, and then you've got a couple other trends I'd like to uh, I'd like to explore as well. And if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. Gerald Salente. He is the publisher of the Trends Journal. I would encourage you to check out his work at trendsjournal.com. You know, we've got U.S. government debt at a level that that really can't be paid. We've got household debt. You note in your uh, December Trends Journal that is now 837 billion dollars higher than the 2008 peak. Uh, which of these becomes the problem first? Is it the, the household debt uh, or is it the, the government debt? It'll be the government debt, but again, they're going to rig the game. They're going to lower interest rates to keep the Ponzi scheme going. At some point, it's going to blow up. And of course, we're going to see the fallout hit the average consumer. Look what it did during the panic of 08. Look at the millions of people who lost their homes. Who bought them up? The hedge funds, the private equity groups. They get bigger. So that's what's going to happen. The government, nah. They'll just keep printing more you know, digital money, not worth the paper it's not printed on. Look, since the Federal Reserve came into existence, the dollar has devaluated 97%. They came in existence in 2013, excuse me, 1913. And we didn't have federal income taxes until Woodrow Wilson also gave us them as well during his presidency back then. So what I'm saying is it's fake money, but it's everywhere. Why is the dollar staying strong? Look what's going on in China. When China joined the World Trade Organization, that was probably you know about 1.5 uh, trillion dollars back in the late 90s. In 2001, they actually officially came on. Today, it's over $30 trillion. $30 trillion. So what, what the governments are doing, they just keep pumping them. This, look, you know, Dennis, you're a great guy. I've been on your show before. I got a deal for you. I got a, I got a 10-year bond that I'm going to sell you. And in 10 years, when you cash it in, because you're such a great guy, I'm going to give you less money than what you paid for it. Call me the Japanese government with their 10-year negative bond yield. You can't make this stuff up. It's one big Ponzi scheme in front of everybody's eyes, but they bow down and, and, and they, they, they keep taking it. It's the central banksters that are running. This is why you're seeing all these revolutions going on in, in Europe. The people have had it. 
Well, Joe, we've got um, less than a minute left in this segment. So let me just remind everybody that uh, if they would like to go check out uh, your website, uh, I would encourage them to do that. It's trendsjournal.com. And uh, you've got about 30 seconds to uh, tell people what might be coming up in the next Trends Journal. Oh, well, we, we, it's a monthly magazine, so of course there'll be another economic update. But we cover everything from, we were one of the first to, to, to get high, get healthy, the whole reefer money madness trip, uh, what's going on in different areas, a healthy environment, uh, alternative energies. It's filled with information and data. The only place guaranteed where you read history before it happens, money back guarantee. It's a monthly magazine, and we have trends in the news broadcasts every weekday night, Monday through Thursdays, and trend alerts each week. All right. Well, that's perfect timing. I think you've done that before. The good news is I will be back with my guest, Mr. Gerald Salente, after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am chatting today with Mr. Gerald Salente. Uh, Mr. Salente is the publisher of the Trends Journal. You can check out his work at trendsjournal.com. And, Gerald, I want to just jump in because uh, I thought that uh, your your piece on censorship in the December Trends Journal was really good. Um, in fact, I read uh, recently a, a survey, and I can't recall the source, but I believe it said that 70% of Americans don't believe the traditional news media. And you talked a bit about censorship that's going on, which sounds like this is the United States of America. How can we have censorship? Can you explain? Well, it's um, again, it, everything ties together. Our system, by the way, is called global, global nomic. I mentioned about what's going on with the economy and how it's only, again, not, these aren't my numbers, that the, the 1% own half the, the uh, stock market shares, household shares. Then you look at the media. You have six companies that control over 90% of it. And now we're seeing the censorship on the uh, social media. We have monopolies. Monopolies are running the game. Google, Facebook, Twitter, they're monopolies. Like them not, agree with them or disagree, they're monopolies. And now the monopoly players are saying what we believe is real, what we believe is authentic, is what you should accept. And that's not my language. You know, we've been writing about this for some, quite some time. They're taking censorship measures, talking, uh, targeting, quote, extremists. 
and conspiracy theorists. Who, who, who are these? Who are they? Well, on the left, the anti-war groups and even groups like the World Socialist Organization. And they're, they're, they're anti-war socialist websites and they're getting, they're getting blackballed. They're changing the algorithms. They're losing tons and tons of, of, of subscribers. And what they do is they come up with the language, Facebook, without warning during the uh, midterm elections. They unplugged over 800 accounts because of their alleged, quote, working to mislead others about who they are and what they're doing. And you know who these, according to the Facebook geniuses who are supposed to tell us what's real and not, well, we had those, uh, those sites that were promoting marijuana and other watchdog sites monitoring police violence and government overspending. That's who they're pulling out. Now, it's not only in the United States. This is going on around the world. So again, it all ties together. I talked earlier about the anti-establishment movements that are going, about the yellow, the yellow vests in, in um, France. They had an election in Congo. The, the, the people there, the Catholic Church was behind a lot of it too, coming out with information that the whole game was rigged. You know what they did in Congo? They shut down the internet. So whether it's Congo Washington, D.C., there's going to be more and more resistance against the resistance of the establishment. So it's not only, you know, what they'll call right-wing conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. No, it's not only him. It's, it's across the board. If you don't play the game, you're gone. Gerald, you also write, and this is, uh, I thought, was very interesting to me, too, because I'm, uh, I'm or an organic food eater, and you talk a little bit uh, in your most recent Trends Journal about, um, you know, despite the fact that what we think is a growing, promising, healthy food movement, uh, the evidence is that we have an obesity epidemic, and Americans are actually dying younger. Can you talk about the facts, and then we'll get into what's driving that trend? Well, again, you know, the facts are there for everybody that wants to, to look at them. And all you have to do is open your eyes, you know, look, look around. And, you know, there's that, there's that line that they used to say, you know, pigs can't fly. They say, you've been to the airport lately? <laughs> you know, so when we talk about the whole organic movement, it only accounted for 5.5% of the food sold in retail channels. So they keep talking about this. And then you look at the fast food business. You know, I was a kid, a young guy, I should say, back in the 1970s. You know, it was only $6 billion in revenue. Today, it's over $200 billion. And the U.S. ranked 43rd among 195 nations, as you mentioned, with where our lifespan is going down. And a, a big part of that has to do with our health and our health in, in obesity, you're looking at, you know, overall 180.5 million Americans. That's 60% of the nation population ages two and over are either obese or overweight. And among adults, 70% of us are overweight 
and 40% are obese. I mean, these numbers are off the charts. And then you go back when I was a kid, back in the 1960s, it was only 3.4%. You are what you eat, and it's being and it's being shown. And by the way, the first book I ever worked on was called Natural Healing back in the 80s. And I have an honorary doctorate of law from the National University of Health Sciences for the work I've done over the decades in natural healing, in uh, whole health healing, and integrative medicine. So, Gerald, it just occurred to me when you were talking that, you know, we've got these numbers, the, these obesity numbers that are off the charts. Uh, to what extent is that related to what's going on economically? I mean, if you look at organic food, it just costs a lot more than processed food. Yeah, who could afford it? I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I, you know, knock on wood, you know, I have a healthy earnings, but you know, I go buy this stuff, you know, and my God, you know, how how could they be charging you know, a dollar for for a grapefruit, you know, or an orange? I mean, that's you know, that's real money for a lot of people, and and so when you look at again making it, putting all the pieces together. I mentioned earlier that 95% of the wealth created since the panic of 08 went to the 1%. Real wages have basically stagnated, and when you put real inflation into them, they've declined. So even if you want to buy the great stuff, you know, you can't. However, having said that, even if it's not organic, people are just eating too much junk. I mean, look at the big deal they make with, you know, with these meals that you could, all you have to do is put the pieces together. Hey, can't you learn how to cook? You know, I mean, come on. You know, I cook for myself all the time. You know, it doesn't cost me a lot of money in, in terms of, you know, what the, the products that I'm buying and that I'm cooking. So people are lazy to do it. And then you look at the total cost of chronic disease due to obesity and overweight in the United States. This is according to the Milken Institute. $1.72 trillion. That's equivalent to over 9% of the U.S. GDP. And they, they're saying obesity is, is a risk factor that's by far the greatest contributor to burden of chronic disease in the United States, accounting for 47% of the total costs of chronic disease nationwide. So, so here we are in America, which is 5% of the world's population, but we are number one when it comes to being overweight, with 13% of the total world overweight and obese people. So, I mean, look at look around. And people are doing this. To, and again, you know, these foods become addicted, addictive, and people can't break the habit of it. You know, I just turned 72 and, you know, I, I, I work out every day and, you know, I have I've been practicing martial arts practitioner for close combat, you know, almost, almost 30 years. And what I've learned is that the older you get, the more you have to do. In other words, I've increased what I used to do. And the less you do, the quicker you go. Gerald, we have enough time to talk briefly about a trend that you mentioned in our first segment, and it's this trend toward this this burgeoning uh, marijuana business as a result of recreational uh, marijuana becoming legal uh, in more states. Can you comment on that briefly? This is one of the biggest trends that's developing. This is going to be a trillion-dollar trend. Again, why are they doing it? For the same reason... They did it with pro lifting prohibition, tax revenue. They're making more tax revenue on pot in Cal in Colorado than they are in booze. But this is much bigger than booze than getting just high. It's the medical marijuana, 
and all the benefits that are being found in it. If the planet could feed us, could it heal us? Well, not according to Big Pharma, of course, but I think they haven't been around for three million years. So what I'm saying is you're going to see more and more discoveries with the benefits of cannabis. All the states need more money. We began this conversation and you were talking, you asked me about the federal debt level and you bring that down to the state levels as well. They need more tax revenues. They're going to legalize it. We got, we got this guy Cuomo in New York over here. Just last year, he said, you know, getting high is a, it's a gateway drug. You know, grow up. If it was a gateway drug, about 90% of the people I know would have been on heroin by now, you know. Take it easy with that baloney. But now they're legalizing it. And you know why? They need the tax revenue. And now you got hemp on there now, too. Trump just signed that bill legalizing hemp. It's going to take care of a lot of synthetic products and, and bringing hemp back. Again, another stupid thing done by a bunch of moronic politicians back in the 1970s. So this is going to be a huge trend. Here we are, 1933. They just lifted prohibition. You're going to get in the alcohol business and make money. That's what we're looking at, and it's going to go global. This is going to be a multi-trillion dollar business. So uh, what part of the industry do you see uh, for a potential investor? What, 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 what comments would you have? Well, both on the recreational side and as they keep changing the laws and each law is going to be different in every state, and every county and every city because you've got a bunch of moron politicians telling us what to do. And that's going to be a big one. The whole, you know, the, the marijuana just for the, you know, getting high aspects. But the bigger one we see is in um, in medical marijuana. That's going to be a huge one. And also the hemp industry, because you're seeing more and more of these anti-plastic movements going on. And there's going to be a lot of replacements with hemp products for that. So it's across the board. And it's where your passion is, where your heart is, where your brain is, and what you think you could do to make it better. And again, it's brand new. Again, we're 1933, the end of prohibition. That's where we are with this whole medical, with the whole marijuana trend, and it global. Again, it's going to go global. They just legalize it down in Mexico. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Gerald Salente. He's the publisher of Trends Journal. I would encourage you to check it out at trendsjournal.com. Gerald, thank you so much. I know you're an extremely busy guy. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, hope we can do it again soon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Dennis. Really appreciate being on for all that you do. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocate radio program. My name is Dennis Tubergen. 
Glad you decided to tune in today. And I want to take just a moment and thank our special guest today once again, Mr. Gerald Salente, for sharing his insights. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about boom and bust cycles that exist as a result of easy money. I gave as an example what happened in the most recent boom-bust cycle when we saw the real estate market crash. We had the financial crisis. We saw stock prices decline. Prior to that, it was the tech stock bubble that inflated and then deflated. So these boom and bust cycles are really attributable to easy money. Now, the common sense perspective to remember is this. Whenever money is created, it's going to find a home. It's got to go somewhere. And in a fractionalized reserve banking system like the system we operate under, Whenever money is borrowed and moves from bank to bank, more money is created. If you're just joining us, if you go make a deposit, as I explained in the first segment of today's program, and put that deposit in your bank, your banker has to reserve 10%, but can loan out the other 90%. Whoever borrows that money goes and makes a purchase, makes his purchase with that borrowed money, and whoever sold that that person, that good or service for that purchase, takes that money and puts it in, the, in their bank and the process repeats itself. So as money moves, more money is created. And historically speaking, whenever the Fed wanted to jumpstart the economy by creating more money, they just reduced interest rates because the lower the interest rate is, the more likely you are to go borrow money. And some of you may remember Back in the late 70s and early 80s, when then-Fed chairperson Paul Volcker raised interest rates up to crazy levels. In fact, I think the prime interest rate at one point peaked at 21%. Well, with interest rates that high, people are not in a hurry to borrow money. And as the movement of money from bank to bank slows, as the velocity of money slows, there's less money created. And it's a great way to combat inflation, which is why Mr. Volcker implemented that policy. Now, looking at the last two boom and bust cycles, let's go back and look at the tech stock boom uh, cycle and bust cycle. Money flowed into tech stocks in the 1990s. The bust for that cycle occurred in 2000, 2001, and 2002. The stock market over those three years, uh, based on the S&P 500, was down 43 to 44%, somewhere in that neighborhood. At the bottom of that cycle, at the, at the, near the end of the bust cycle, then Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan dropped interest rates. Interest rates dropped to 1% or a touch lower, which again made money start moving and more money was created. Well, let's go back to this eternal truth. When money is created, it's going to find a home. Well, this newly created money found a home in real estate and it found a home in stocks. Real estate prices went crazy, stock prices inflated until 2007 and 2008 when the bus cycle kicked in. When the bus cycle kicked in, then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke reduced interest rates to 0%. And what happened? Crickets. Nothing. 
Bernanke then decided that if reducing interest rates to zero wouldn't work, he would simply print money. Now, when the Fed decided to print money, they didn't say we're going to print money. They said they're going to engage in a program of quantitative easing. Call it what you want. It still is what it is. The Fed never says print money. They say they're going to engage in bond purchases or some more sanitized-sounding name, but it means printing money. Now, the question, if you're thinking ahead and you're, and you're, you're considering what I'm, I'm talking about on today's program, the question is, when Bernanke dropped interest rates to 0%, why did money not move? The answer is pretty simple if you think about it. If you are up to your neck in debt and you cannot afford another payment on another loan, does it matter to you what the interest rate on the loan is? And the answer, of course, is no. It really doesn't matter. It can be negative interest rates. If I can't afford the payment, I can't take the loan out. That's what happened collectively at the time of the financial crisis. The country had reached its limit as far as being able to sustain debt. Now, let me give you a statistic and repeat a statistic that I talked about with Mr. Salente today. Private sector debt levels, forget government debt levels, that's another story for another day. But private sector debt levels are over $830 billion higher in the United States today than at the peak prior to the financial crisis. And here's why all this is important to you. If we have another bus cycle, and history tells us for the last 45, 46 years, we've been going through boom and bust cycles. This is the way the economy works in a fractionalized reserve banking system and fiat currency. You need to be careful about the financial advice that you're taking. See, the traditional financial advice would tell you to take your assets and invest them in a bucket. And in this bucket, there are some stocks and there are some bonds. And as you get older, you have a greater percentage of your assets and bonds. However, in a boom and bust cycle, both stocks and bonds can go down at the very same time. If interest rates go up, bond funds go down. If stocks go down, stock funds go down as well. You could have these things occur simultaneously. If you owned... In the 70s, when interest rates were going up and stocks were going down, if you own both of those asset classes, you lost money. However, if you had tangible assets and cash in your portfolio, you didn't lose money. That's why we advocate a two-bucket approach, particularly when you study history, you look at boom and bust cycles, you look at the conditions and consequences that emerge after money printing, And the two-bucket approach is the only one that really makes sense. And the nice thing about using a two-bucket approach versus a one-bucket approach is the timing is so difficult to predict with a two-bucket approach, it typically doesn't matter. Now, we have a website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, where you can find additional resources. Each week's program is posted there in the form of a podcast. And there are other free resources available as well. So I would encourage you to go check out retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. 
And you can listen to the interview that I did to Mr. Salente again. Uh, the podcast is posted there every Monday at 5 o'clock. You can also sign up for our Portfolio Watch market update there. That's a newsletter that we publish every week, delivered by email, delivered also Monday nights at 5 o'clock. So I'd encourage you to check out those resources. Thanks for joining me today. I'll be back again next week. Hope to see you then.